Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to everyone up in in preparing. Good evening to everyone uh, in Bowmanville. So glad you're joining us. All of us are in relationships with people that we love. They can be friends if you're married, a spouse, even uh, roommates. And as you get to know someone over a period of time, you realize that though you like them and you love them, there are things that they do that drive you just a little crazy. Uh, mm, Yes, Lord. All right, here we go. We're starting good today. Such as some people don't realize that, you know, the toilet doesn't flush by itself. It's like, you're just like, do you not understand? You just do this. It's so easy. Others of you have this struggle where you're like, does the person in my life understand that toilet paper doesn't magically appear? You just have to put something on the roll. Others of you are like, oh, I have children in my life. They magically think there is that fairy that comes and does their laundry and does the room. No, no, this is your new exciting responsibility. The longer that you are with people, the, no, the, the longer you begin to see who they are. Now, my wife and I have been, have been married for 18 long, blissful years. Uh, and, and as we've got to know each other, there are many things that between her and I, we, we don't see eye to eye on. Every single morning, my wife, in great love, asks me this question. She's like, John, you're a leader, and sometimes you're a professor, and, and you're pretty smart, I think think, and yet do you lack the intellectual capacity just to close your drawers in the dresser? Is this, is there a problem? Is there a processing issue? Because you just never shut the door and I run into them. Now, in great love, I respond to my wife, full of love, joy, peace, and patience. And I said, oh, I was asking my same, myself the same question about your capacity. Because when I'm actually in, in, the, in the garage, in the recycling bin, I know the difference between plastic and cardboard. And I'm just wondering if you understand, because I work so hard and you just throw everything all over. And so I'm asking that question. And so you can see that we have a very alive, real marriage together. And uh, she's like, "Mm, yes. And she's like, tell me more stories. But all of us, when we are in, in with people, whether roommates or friends, we all have things that actually annoy the other person, though we love them. Now, those are small things that should never break a relationship. Those are things that we learn to love each other through and put up with and even change our behavior, which I'm trying to do. But it is when the discrepancy between the words or the life you're living And what you're supposed to live gets so big that actually your life or what you're trying to do or the relationship you're in gets threatened. And what's so striking about that, what's so important about that is this. Jesus said these profound words 2,000 years ago that, that the world would know that everything he did and everything that we claim is true because of our what? Love. And the question we now have to continually in this generation as Christians in this moment wrestle through, how large is the gap between what I'm claiming and what I'm saying and the love I'm supposed to be demonstrating? John Lennon years ago famously sang those words, all we need is love. And we've sung it ever since, and it's so true. 
The most longed after commodity, the most beautiful item, the deepest longing of every single human heart, seven plus billion people, whether you're evil, good, or in between, is to be loved consistently, honestly, and authentically. It was Aline Botton, who was a very famous philosopher and an atheist. When I read some of his work, I was struck at how unbelievable he was able to articulate the need we all have for love. One day he was walking down the street with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend made a comment. They both passed an unfortunate woman on the street, and the girlfriend asked him, would you love me if I had an enormous birthmark on my face like she did? Now, of course, the yearning is that the answer would be a capital Y, yes, an answer that would place love above the mundane surfaces of the body, or more particularly, its cruel, unchangeable ones. In other words, this is what she wanted to hear. I love you not just for your wit. I love you not just because you're talented or for your beauty. I simply love you because you are you with no strings attached. I love you for who you are deep in your soul, not for the color of your eyes, not for the length of your legs or the size of your checkbook. See, the longing is that a lover would admire us stripped of all our external assets, dating the essence of our being without any single accomplishment in the room. Even if we're beautiful, even if we're rich, we still do not wish to be loved on account of these things because beauty and wealth may fail us. And if that is what love is, then love will fail us. The desire, he writes, is this, that I would be loved even if I lost everything, leaving just nothing but me. This mysterious me taken to be the self at its weakest and most vulnerable point. And then he writes these profound words. Do you love me enough that I may be weak with you? Everyone in our culture loves strength and put togetherness and beauty and sexuality. But do you love me, he writes, for my weakness? Sit back for a moment and you think about this today. Love remains the most needed commodity and reality for you personally. Love is the most needed thing for your family, for the school you attend, the neighborhood you live in, for your workplace, the great city we live in, and our world. But love is so rare, and love is so badly defined. In our culture these days, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, in books and music and advertising, even in the visual arts, love much of the time is either missing or it is so terribly defined, it is the opposite of what God says it is. So many think that love is a feeling. Love is reduced to emotion. Love is something you fall into and fall out of. The word or idea love has no more weight or power anymore. We equate love with lust or sex or porn or one night stands. We call sexual partners what? Lovers. We call every form of sexual contact in our culture making love. But the Bible says this isn't love. One writing on biblical love said these words, love first of all is an action. It is an unconditional commitment. It is a promise that is never to be broken. If that is what love is, like truly, if, if love is an action, not an emotion, if love is unconditional, if it is vow-like, then this is no call for no minor revolt. And if that is what love really is, then our world and all of us living in this time and in this generation have been living much of the time in a desert, in a world barren of real love. And if this is what love is, then all of us sitting in any one of our sites today can sit back and say, well... I could never be that consistently. I mean, look at the little fights I mentioned this morning, and that's just the little ones. And the Bible comes along, and God comes along and says, well, of course. You cannot be love that is actually beyond human unless someone steps in in the first place and demonstrates. You see, biblical love starts when you first experience the love of God. 
You cannot become loving in the biblical sense. You cannot become deeply changed in your soul. You cannot be radically new unless you know a love that is not from us in the first place. So we as human beings feel stuck realizing how inadequate we are, how much we fight and turn on each other, even on those whom we love. And so we cry out to the universe and we cry out to God if he's out there, do you love me enough that I may be weak with you? Everyone in our culture loves strength, but God, do you love me in my weakness? And before God can answer, we as humans responded and say, no, no, it's too good to be true. And we've got to do something about this, so let's earn God's love. Let's, let's push. Let's be strong. I, I can't be weak in front of God. So in, we instinctively move to prove ourselves to God like some little child whose father is fickle. Maybe he'll like me today if I'm good enough. And so we invented this terrible thing called religion. Getting God's attention by being really good. A whole other group of us said, no, religion is not the answer. And so we ignored God because he seems too good to be true or we don't like his standards or we don't think he's there. So we invented this thing called trusting in ourselves and we invented secularism and atheism and agnosticism. But to quote that famous ad from the mid-90s that all the comedians laughed about and we all made fun of, I've fallen and I cannot get up. All of us, secular, spiritual, and the deeply religious have all fallen out of love and can't repair it. I've quoted this many times before, but I love this because it brings home how serious the condition is of our own experience. A man was walking one day and fell in a pit and he couldn't get himself out. So the subjective person came along and he said, I feel you down in that pit and walked away. The objective person came along and said, well, it's logical someone fell down there. The Christian scientist came along and declared, you only think you're in that pit. <laughs> the Pharisee said only bad people fall into pits. And, and the mathematician calculated how you fell in the pit in the first place and walked away. A news reporter came along and wanted the exclusive of how you actually fell in the pit. The fundamentalist came along, took his glasses off and says, you deserve to be in that pit. Confucius came along and said, if you'd only listened to me, you would not be in the pit. And Buddha said, the pit is only a state of your mind. A realist came along and just said, well, yeah, that's a pit. The geologist came along and asked you to appreciate the strata of the rock while you're sitting in the pit. The inspector came along and said, do you have a permit for that pit? The professor came along as you're sitting in the pit and said to you, well, let me give you an elementary principles of the pit lecture. An evasive person came along, got scared of you and the pit, and ran away from it altogether. A self-pitying person came along and says, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. The optimist said, things could get worse, and the pessimist thinks, things will, of course, get worse. Why I love that is because that actually is a phenomenal summary of the human condition and our response to our problem. And here's the difference between all of that and Jesus. Jesus got in the pit with us. And not only did he get in the pit with us, he didn't look down or said, why are you in that pit or you deserve to be in that pit? He got in the pit and then what did he do? He actually showed us a way to get out of the pit with him. Jesus comes to earth because he loves us. And he loves us in our weakness, in our stripped downness, and our lostness, and our brokenness, and even in our spiritual death. Why did Jesus come? Why did the Father send him to pull us out of the pit? Because he, unlike any other philosopher or leader or religion, is love. 
When God reveals himself exclusively and beautifully through Jesus, and after if you choose to do this, to invite Jesus into your life as Savior and leader and Lord, then and only then can you become a loving revolution to your family and enemies and friends and neighbors because you now know what love looks like and you also now experience love because love has moved into your very being. See, what we need to understand because of the diversity sitting in every room this morning listening to this is when you encounter biblical love, both the right and left brain is engaged You intellectually now know what love is. It is defined for you, but you also experientially are consumed by love because the beauty of God through the Holy Spirit moves into you. But you cannot love in a world without love, without an external force. Jesus sitting with some of his closest friends who'd become followers, they heard these words. As the fathers loved me, I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands, Jesus said, you'll remain in my love just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and I remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that they'd lay their life down for their friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants or slaves because a servant does not even know their master's business. Instead, I now call you my friends for everything I've learned from my Father I've now made known to you. Oh, you, you didn't choose me. You might think you did. No, you didn't. I chose you and I appointed you to go bear fruit, fruit that's going to last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Listen to those verses if you're a seeker, a skeptic, or a Christian. Jesus says, I loved you first. Uh, You are a friend of heaven's. I I chose you. You couldn't even get to me. I've appointed you. Oh, and my promise is I will give you joy. See, God starts it all. And this is what love really is. It's a decided action that actually produces life. You can never earn God's love. It's just given. Jesus' greatest expression of love was not just his birth or his perfect life or his miracles or his healings, that he laid his life down and died in our place and died for our sins and came to us when we could not get to him. Jesus' love has been expressed is given, he has acted, and his promises are fulfilled. We know that God is trustworthy in love because Jesus reveals the Father. But remember what that philosopher wrote? How profound. The desire is that I would be loved even if I lose everything. Leaving nothing just but me. This mysterious me taken to be the self at its weakest, at the most vulnerable point. Do you love me enough that, that I can be weak with you God, everyone loves strength and put togetherness, but do you love me in my weakness and my brokenness? And Jesus cries out, yes. But not just in your weakness and not just in your brokenness. I love you one step farther, which the world does not want to admit, but is true. I even love you in your rebellion. Because every human being has fallen short of the glory of God. But then Jesus says, but you must accept love to become a loving revolution to others. That's why Paul so beautifully wrote to another church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace, undeserved mercy, that you get saved through faith, informed trust. This is never from yourself. It's always a gift from God, not by works so no one gets to brag or boast. 
This love, this salvation deal, this ongoing presence of God is, is a God thing, 100%. And if you've met Jesus, when the love of God came into your life, nothing can ever remove this. Someone needs to hear this this morning. You can't remove God's love from you. Your family can't do it. Persecution can't do it. Torture cannot do it. Sin can't do it. Abuse can't do it. And the devil cannot take it away either. Here's what Paul wrote to the church in Romans, in Romans 8.38. I'm convinced. I know that I know that I know that I know that death, when I go into that coffin, or life, or angels, or demons, the present or the future or any power, height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in the Messiah Jesus our Lord. Amen, anyone? But after you've been loved by Jesus and are continued to be loved by Jesus, as your identity over time is placed in his love, when our wounds are being addressed by his love, when our sin is being covered by his love, when our life becomes secure in his love, then we can love Jesus back and others. So now we come back to Paul. In this series that we've been working through where Paul is writing to this very dysfunctional church, and where did Paul start? All the way back in the very first week, he reminds them of the love of God. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Oh, you know the love of God, he says to this church. You've experienced God's love and and your love is real, but then your love back to God and others is the real problem. And this is why I had to write this letter because love hasn't gripped your heart and changed your everyday life. Do you remember all the problems in this church? People are sleeping around with relatives. There's incest in the church. Other people are sleeping with prostitutes thinking God would be okay with it. And more than just the terrible idolatry and adultery that's happening and using young women as sex objects, these sex trade workers were connected to pagan temples. So when you had sex with them, you were worshiping a pagan God. And then everyone else in the church is saying, well, you can do anything you want sexually because God doesn't care about your body and he'll cover everything every way and anyway with grace. And then there's the verbal gang warfare going on between different groups in the church that like one leader over the other and the people are connecting with demons even though they're Christians. Others are using their, their spiritual gifts to abuse others or puff themselves up and everyone's just too self-confident. Other Christians are suing each other in open court. Others are denying the resurrection. Others are arguing over food to idols. Other people are turning communion into a classism battle where the wealthy got all the food, the poor got nothing and they're getting dead drunk in the middle of communion. And if that's not bad enough, half the church is getting divorced and not even wondering if that's okay or not. And then people are going on and on and saying, well, we don't like you, Paul, because actually you're not charismatic enough. You're not a good enough speaker. And we don't really like your view of spirituality. And so you've got strife, abuse, discords, factions, lawsuits, sexual immorality, and chaos. In other words, they did not look any different than the unloving city they're part of and were supposed to reach. They idolized the smartest. They glorified the most spiritually sensitive They idolized who could argue best, who was more intellectual, who was self-made, and they even idolized those who did the most social justice. And during all of that unlove and all of that craziness, they still came to church, still went to connect groups, still listened to sermons, they still spoke in tongues and they prophesied and they took communion together, sort of, and and they ate together. But their life delegitimized their message because there was no love. This love that they knew had not gripped them, changed them, and transformed them. So Paul comes along near the end of this letter, and says, do you really think because you can speak in tongues you're more spiritual? You really actually believe in heaven's you that you're more profound because you've got the gift of prophecy? No, no. If you want to be a pilgrim and pioneer, if you want to legitimize the message of Jesus, if you really want to see a city transformed, then let me tell you, and this is where we ended last week, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you the most excellent way. And so, what's the most excellent way? What's the greatest of all the gifts? Love. 
Be the love you already know and this love that you've pushed down and pushed away and forgotten about in the fog of sin. So Paul then writes this passage that is only read usually during marriages but should be read every single day by every Christian on earth. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I I can fathom like all mysteries and I have all knowledge, and if I have faith that can literally move mountains and I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body even to hardship, I deny what I want for the sake of God. That I, my, that I may boast, I could get to brag, uh, and I don't have love, I, I gain nothing. Oh, notice it. Love, with, love word and power gifts all here. No matter what we do, if, if I have the ability to speak in tongues and see angels and cast out demons, if I know God is about to do an amazing thing and in faith I get to say amen and see God do that, if I'm on the leading edge of social justice and fighting for the poor and the oppressed, if, if I actually deny things I want sexually or with money or with power because I want to honor God, but I am not marked by love, I am just like an alarm going off that is irritating. This love, by the way, is not sexual or friendship love, though those are both fine. This is called in the Bible agape love. It is biblical love. It's not impetuous. It's steady. It's faithful. It's deliberate. It's loyal love. It actually comes from God's own DNA. I love that I read this years ago. One person wrote, Agape love is strongly emotional, but it is not fueled by emotion. God's love is perfect love. And so we sit back and we know the love of God if you're a Christian here today and you've experienced the election of the Father and the work of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit and you've been forgiven and loved and honored. But then we ask the question, but what does this look like on the ground? How am I supposed to love God back and others? And Paul says, no problem. I'll tell you exactly what this is. Agape love is patient. And it's kind. And agape love doesn't envy and it doesn't boast. It's not proud. Oh, when God's love is around, no one's rude. When God's love is happening to church, no one's self-seeking, it's not easily angered. Oh, and it keeps no record of wrongs. When, when agape is around, no one's delighting in evil. They, they, they rejoice with truth. And, and when agape love is around, people are protected and trusted and, and there's hope and there's perseverance. Agape love is patient and kind. Patient means long-suffering, uncomplaining. The King James puts it this way, you suffereth long with yourself or others. Patience is the evidence of God in a culture that throws away everything three seconds later. When agape love is around, you're kind. You're not always lashing out. Actually, kindness means mercy. Actually, kindness means not giving people what they deserve. When agape love is around, envying crashes, and so does boasting and pride. You know, envy is interesting. Envy is when you promote strife and rivalry. You love fighting for the love and favor of others. Dr. Henry Cloud, that famous psychologist, wrote these words about envy. He said, you know, envy defines what is good as what we do not have. In other words, if I do not possess something, it takes on a higher value than if I do have it. Likewise, once I attain that thing, it no longer has value to me because now I have it. And then he writes these words, do not lust after people's positions or status, or possessions, or talents, or relationships, or whatever. That road of envy leads to discontent, and it always leads to out-of-control behavior. Let me go beyond the psychologist's language. It leads to sin and death. 
When agape love is filling your heart and my heart and our family's heart, suddenly envy drops because you find your fulfillment in what you have and you find your fulfillment deeper in who God is and what he has given you and what he says over you. When agape love is around, boasting drops. What's boasting? You're a braggart, a windbag, self-catered. You call attention to yourself. Let me ask you a question. You who love social media, how much of your social media is really about boast? Pride. What does pride look like on the ground? Well, it's just simple. I'm better than you. Don't you know that? I'm younger than you. I'm sexier than you. I'm older than you. I'm wiser than you. Look at my education. Look at my clothing. Don't you know I have this gift and you have that gift? Well, we go to this type of church that has smoke machines. Why do you still have hymns over there? Don't you know we're so much better than you? When the Spirit of God is alive and when the Spirit of God is in us and when the Spirit of God is promoting love, pride just disappears in the vision of God. When agape love is, is, is in a heart, rudeness disappears. I'm so glad that this is in the text because our culture teaches us that love is tolerance. That is, I must agree with everyone and if I disagree with you, I'm not loving. No, that is not biblical love. Rudeness means in defiance of moral standards. You are not loving in God's eyes. You are not loving in the biblical worldview when you say to God, you have no right to tell me how to live. That is rudeness. When you say to teachers or or parents or those who are meant to lead you, no, you say this and I say that. When you behave shamefully, when you use violence, when you use shame or guilt to humiliate others, that's what rudeness means in Greek. When God is working in a life and his love is spilling out, you suddenly are not self-seeking. You know, the greatest lie in our culture is that the hope of all of humanity is to discover to discover itself. The highest good we're taught is if I can find me. No. You can find your purpose in life and that's great and how you are and you have great value but the highest purpose in life is not yourself. And when love is around, that disappears. When love is around, you're not easily angered. You don't fly off the deep end every three seconds when something goes sideways. Anger, of course, is a primary emotion. Usually behind anger, there is fear and control. When love is around, you keep no record of wrongs. You don't keep an account of other people's stuff they've done against you or others. Now, don't don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean you forget everything. You probably won't forget anything. Here's the point. When this person does this thing, you choose not to use it against them, even though they deserve it. It's imitating God. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, not counting people's sin against them. Now, on a side note, this has been terribly preached. This is not saying if a crime has been committed, there's no justice. Someone still can be arrested. You still can call the cops. You can still actually have the law intervene and forgive them at the same time. But what you know as a Christian that is fundamentally different than the world is this. Forgiveness has more power than revenge. You know as a Christian how much you've been forgiven. You know that you are on your way to hell. You understand that we were all in rebellion. You understand more than anyone else on earth how bad it was and Jesus forgave you. So if that person who sinned against you, small or large, becomes a Christian, then you know that Jesus takes the bullet for them and they become your brother and sister. And if they choose not to embrace Jesus, they will face God on judgment day and have no covering, but they will still give an account. In the end, justice will be done. Let me say this again. I've preached it so many times. No one gets away with anything. No corporation, no government. Everything done in secret will be revealed. And that brings me great hope. And that is why we can keep no record of wrongs because God, in the end, will make everyone 
face their own stuff. And Jesus covers our own stuff. When agape love is around, we don't delight in evil, but we rejoice in truth. If agape is fully taking grip in your life and in my life, we run to the gospel. We love truth. We love this book, not because it is God, but it reveals who God is to us. We love what is pure. We don't accommodate. We don't joke about evil things. We don't find joy in mass violence or sexual misconduct or rebellion or hate or racism. We don't promote or find joy in addiction. Your life does not reflect rebellion against those in authority. It actually reflects something else. When you love truth, you love truth online. When you love truth, you love truth when you watch television when you're in conversation and when you're, when you're by yourself, the Spirit of God still brings that love back to you. You don't get excited. You don't promote. You don't sit or swim in darkness. You love Jesus. You love his word. You love his teaching. You love him and you love what he's about because he's better and more pure than the rest of that stuff. You don't get excited about war. When I was a child, I used to imagine being a soldier. I used to love the idea of invasion. Some of you are like, yeah, that makes sense. I used to plan as a teenager invading countries. And years later when I grew up, God said to me, you understand, right? It only just brings death. Why do you find joy in that? When, when you see the poor oppressed, you find no joy in it. When agape is present. And on a very personal level, we find no joy when agape is present in the act of the, the, this terrible experience called gossip because gossip is when we delight when other people fall around us. When agape is present, that all disappears. When agape is present, there's protection and trust and hope and perseverance. Love never ceases to have faith. It never loses hope. It always endures. It cannot be stopped. How come in love can never be stopped? Because love ripples into eternity. How? Because God himself is love. So Paul says to this church in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails. Where there's prophecies, yeah, they're going to cease. Where there's tongues, yeah, they're going to be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it's going to pass away. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, well, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I, I put childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is agape love. Oh yeah, the spiritual gifts are going to end. And remember why he brings this up, because this church was obsessed with glorifying their identity and their spiritual gifts and looking down at others. He says, oh, they're all going to go away. The only thing that lasts in the end is love. Now, have the spiritual gifts ended yet? No. The spiritual gifts stop their function when the completeness comes, when we see who face-to-face, -face, when we see Jesus face-to-face. -face. Has this taken place yet? No. Many in other churches teach all the power gifts ended when we finish the Bible. It's just not true. The Bible says when we see Jesus face-to-face, -face, we won't need this. It does not say when I see his book face-to-face, -face, this stuff will end. But here's his point. The greatest good news of Christianity is not just the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just the Spirit of God is with us. It's not that we just have spiritual gifts, but love ripples forever into eternity. And why? Because the new heavens and the new earth are entirely about God, and God is revealed in Jesus, and Jesus is in the middle of the new heavens and the new earth. And when we see him face to face, we will live in perpetual love forever, and it will never be broken ever again. Now, there are many of you who join us 
and your seekers and your skeptics. You might have the title Christian and you might not. You might be a Muslim or a Hindu or a spiritualist or a Satanist or anything in between. You have not embraced Jesus and have never clearly given your life to him as Savior, Leader, and Lord. Here's what I'd like to say to you. Jesus is the only human in all of history to never break his word and to never mess up. Because Jesus is agape love incarnate. Because he's God. Why would you not trust him and give up your life of sin or give up your dreams or your ambitions or your your religion or your worldview or your self-sufficiency? Because see, here's the truth about you. Because it's the same truth about me. In your heart of hearts, you long for someone to date your essence without achievement. You long for someone to look at you and say, I don't care how wealthy you are. I don't care how beautiful or ugly. I just love you. And Jesus steps onto the scene. And here's the profound thing about Jesus. Jesus is patient with you. He extends forgiveness time and time again. We say this in the Bible. God's mercies are new when? Every morning. Jesus is kind He doesn't give any of us what we deserve. He already on the cross took what we deserve. Jesus doesn't envy because he knows he's better and he is better. Jesus doesn't boast. He isn't proud. He doesn't need to be. He's demonstrated that meekness is real power. Jesus isn't rude because he has nothing to prove. He's not motivated by competition or fear. He's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of me. He's not afraid of Satan. He's not afraid of anything. How free Jesus is unlike us. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is not self-seeking. He glorifies the Father. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Someone just heard in their head, that's not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. He keeps no record of wrongs. Because when he said on the cross that it's finished, what did he mean? That. It is finished. It's all broken. In grace, he decides not to hold things against us. If we accept his work on the cross. Jesus isn't easily angered. Some of you are like, I don't believe that. No, it's true. Jesus doesn't flip out every single time we miss the mark. Jesus hates evil and he's going to deal with it and he has started to deal with it and he loves good and he always protects and he's full of hope and he's trustworthy and he never gives up. Paul, who wrote this letter, wrote to another church in the epicenter of power 2,000 years ago in Rome. And don't forget who Paul was again. Double PhD, equivalent in theology, a murderer of Christians and, and so brilliant and had every right to brag about being religious, and he encountered Jesus, and he, he actually says in Philippians, I count that, and I'm just quoting the scriptures, it's all crap compared to now I've met Christ. Writing to another church, he said these in Romans 5, 6, and by the way, for the skeptic and seeker among us, this is for you, like lean in. You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love love for us in this. While we were still sinners, oh, Christ died for us. And for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You know what I love about the Bible? The Bible doesn't lie to make us feel okay about ourselves. See, this is what you need to hear about yourself if you're not a Christian here today. You are powerless before God, you are ungodly, you are a sinner, and you're an enemy of God. You're saying, no, that's impossible, I'm Canadian and I'm nice. No. 
Every human being on earth has walked away from God and by our actions and by our idolatry and I bet our selfishness, we've become powerless and sinful and, and we are lost and we are in enemies. And in the middle of all of that, God says, I know, I love you so much. So in the next few minutes, as you sit here and you reflect on that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to cross from death to life to actually embrace Jesus and say, no, no, I need your forgiveness and your purity. Actually, I need your agape love to spill all over me and change me so I have eternal life and I can give life to others. Now, to the rest of us who are followers of Jesus already, to we who only hear this passage at weddings, let me just share these few parting thoughts. Love is the greatest weapon we have against Satan. Love is the greatest tool we have for evangelism. Love is the only way church works, this one or anyone else. Love is the only way your connect group will become stronger. Love is the only thing that will strengthen your friendships and your marriage. Love is the needed character to support an ongoing move of God so it doesn't go sideways. Love is the only way we hold living electricity in our hands called spiritual gifts. Love is the only thing that will prove to the world that what we're saying isn't smoke and mirrors, but true. And when you look at this, and I look at this, I am overwhelmed by my incompetence. What I learned from the scriptures is love is a choice. It's a decision to be made. And love is actually ultimately about faithfulness to Jesus. We do loving things not to get God's attention, but to evidence we are with him, and not only that, so we worship him. But when I look at 1 Corinthians 13 and I look at my wife or my kids or my leadership or my teaching or my professoring or my own inner life, I'm overwhelmed how underwhelming I am. And then Jesus reminds us all of something. The initiation of love was always a gift in the first place. And the ongoing well to access so the love can still be real among us all the time is still not from us. When Jesus says words like, you know, you love me, you'll know you love me if you obey my commands, that's scary enough. But then Jesus adds something in John 15. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And then he says, and I'm going to ask my father, and he's going to give you another counselor to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. Ah, and see, that's when we get relief in this message. Because suddenly we realize something. That the love called agape comes from the Spirit of God and He has to do something in us we can't do by ourselves. You say, well, John, what's the take-home this week? Well, the take-home is very simple, very profound, very undoing, very freeing. Take out 1 Corinthians 13 in any translation you want. You won't escape, trust me. <laughs> and look at it. And if you're married... Look at 1 Corinthians 13 and say, how spiritual is my marriage? Your friendships. Take 1 Corinthians 13. Honestly do this. Your work. Your relationships at church. Your relationship with family and friends. Mothers, fathers, sisters, aunts, brothers. The use of spiritual gifts, which we value so highly in this church, and yet, are they un undergirded by the character of 1 Corinthians 13? 
And when you see how massive the gap is between the standard of Christ and your life, that is not when you give up and say, well, I'm just going to keep playing church. No, that's when you say, almost like in this new holy habit, spiritual discipline ability, where every time you need love, you start saying this, Holy Spirit, I now need you to produce this in me here. I jokingly said this a few months ago where I grew up in churches where they said never pray for patience because God might answer you. No, pray for patience. God wants you to be loving. Pray for kindness. Pray for self-control. Pray for no record of wrongs. And this is why this is so profound because when you say, but John, I can't give up that thing because it's too painful. The Holy Spirit can help you do that. When you say, but I, I don't know how to be patient with my children, the Holy Spirit can produce that in you. When you say, but I've got to learn a whole set of different things to be kind to someone, the Holy Spirit, see, this is the point. Jesus walked under the power of the Spirit, and he's given us the same power that rose Jesus from the dead to live the same life Jesus did, and he promises us that we can be loved on this side of heaven. We don't all have to die broken. We can be living in love on this side and experience it fully on that side. And why does this matter? Because the world, your neighbors, your friends, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'is, Sikhs, witches, atheists, agnostics, fill in the blank, spiritualists, are all wondering if our movement has more power than theirs. And it's not going to be a, a match between who's stronger, it's going to be who's more loving. Because this is what people want. So could we all across this community here and all across all of our communities, could we all stand together and could we pray? Number one, all of us want to say to God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, thank you that you're love. Anyone want to say amen to that this morning? He's good, he's kind, he's merciful. Thank you, number two, that you, sh you, you just came for us. You didn't look at us in the pit and just keep walking by. I mean, you came. You moved into the neighborhood. You moved into our stuff and you pulled us out. All of us who know your love are eternally grateful. Give us words to express that to you. Some of us don't know you yet, God. We've never met God personally through Jesus and we just know we're supposed to do this. So if this is you, just say this. You say, I confess Jesus is Lord. I believe he lived and he died and he physically rose from the dead and I want to be saved. If, if that love that that guy was talking about is true in Jesus, I want that in my life. I welcome the love of God through Jesus into my life so I can be forgiven, have patience and kindness and love expressed towards me I don't understand. I turn from trusting in other religions or myself and I say yes to Jesus Christ. I want eternal life and I also want to live a life here that is different. And I pray this in the first time in the name of Jesus. And for the rest of us, and if you're a Christian, would you just mind opening your hands this morning? It's just a historic way of, of saying I'm open to God. And here's our simple prayer. God, we all have bruises and bumps and pain. We've made a lot of mistakes and a lot of mistakes have been made against us. So we're asking in a world that's tearing itself apart, down political lines and racial lines and through guns and violence and on a, baptize, fill again and again this church with love. Just help us, Holy Spirit, produce in us 
between spouses, between children and parents, between brothers and sisters, between people in connect groups, even produce love between us who don't get along and never really like each other on this side but still need to do life together. Just produce love in us. And our last request is, Holy Spirit, every time we're not loving, just tell us so we're not unaware anymore. Thank you that this is not a vain promise, but this is a promise of Scripture that Jesus promised we would not be left as orphans, but actually he'd send the Spirit of God not only to reveal truth, but to produce in us a life that is different than the rest of the world. Lord, thank you for all the love that is in this church already, and now may it exponentially grow more and more. May not one person, Lord, be condemned by this message. May every person see the love of God and be brought closer to him. All glory be to God the Father, who in love called us before the beginning of time. All glory be to Jesus Christ the Son, who came for us when we were in the pit, died for us, prays for us right now, and is resurrected from the dead. And all glory be to the Holy Spirit, who produces love in us, guarantees us eternal life, and reminds us that this world does not have the final say, but he has the final say. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.